So I remember that fateful night was I came home and at the hospital called. I get into the car and I sped there. <laughs> it was the worst, like it was the most dangerous driving that I've ever done. But I think when I when we arrived, she has already passed away. And uh, so my dad went to the bed and my dad cried next to her. And then I went and stood outside the room that was this pillar. I stood outside the pillar and I and I tried to cry. There was this heaviness in my chest, you know, and I, I wanted out, but I couldn't cry. It, it was kind of in a numb state. Like, whatever they asked me to do, I sign, I just signed. I wasn't showing a lot of emotions. And I was just kind of like numb and just a state of, I don't know, like disbelief. But as well as knowing that this is real. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. For anyone that's been keeping up with this season of the Screwed Up Moments podcast so far, you'll know that the past two episodes with Melanie Hill and Bruce Matthew have been somewhat heavy, to say the least. So being that we are now at just about the halfway point of the season, I'd like to take a little bit of a breather from the more gruesome screw-ups to revisit a topic that has a lot of personal meaning to me, burnout. Like many in the working world, we can often find ourselves in a position where we feel suffocated or mentally drained from our jobs, all the more so when you don't really seem to enjoy or find too much purpose in what you're doing. Some of us crumble under the pressure, some leave their jobs to pursue a passion project, while others bear the burden stoically for years and years on end. In today's episode, we speak to one such stoic, Angela Ung. Except that in her story, we find out what happens when the unstoppable force of her drive and ambition meets the immovable object of life's inevitable screwed up moments. Hello, my name is Angela and this is my screw up moment. So I currently am a lecturer and trainer in design thinking. I use design thinking for business innovation and communication design. But I also use design thinking to actually help people to design their well-being and happiness. Mm. Um, so that was the topic of my TED Talk uh, last year. Mm. So you mentioned that you grew up in Singapore in the 70s and 80s, right? Mm. So I only I was only born in the 90s, so I don't know what it's like back then. Could you sort of paint a picture of what oh, Singapore was like and what it was like for Singapore you? Singapore is beautiful then, you know, because we <laughs> we gained independence in the in 65. Yeah. Right? So the 70s is really just shortly after independence, HDBs, they were building the flats everywhere. And I remember the day I was born, my mom always told me that I'm the very expensive child. <laughs> Why? Because that was the day where the government increased tax on babies, on newborns, because oh. they want to discourage families having many kids. Right. So back then, we had that 
you were born in the 80s, no, right? No, 90. 90s. Yeah. So by then, government's encouraging us to have more. <laughs> but I, I was born in the year where governments are encouraging people to have less. Right. Like, ideally one, you stop know, at two. if not, stop at two. Yeah. yeah, but ideally one, you know, one is like the perfect number. Yeah. So I'm the one, I'm the only child. <laughs> Because my mom always said that, you know, the day you were born, it's so expensive, we're not going to have another one. <laughs> and you also specifically talked about, like, the sort of culture or mindset that you had growing up, right? Mm. So could you describe what that, that was for you? Mine's a little bit unconventional. I remember even within my own family, my mom was the only working woman of her generation. My aunts, they all were like housewives. Even if they work, they work. Like they do sewing jobs or babysitting at home. They don't really go out, you know. So I always um, grow up feeling a little bit different from the rest of the kids. And both parents are very hardworking you know, they wanted to give me a good life. They wanted to build um, a comfortable lifestyle for the family. So both of them work very hard. My mom especially, she will do all the housework, do all the cooking, and then she'll leave home to go work. Wow. Um, and then she'll come back in the evening and do all the washing and the cleaning. Wow. So she sleeps very little, but she's very proud. And that's what she has instilled in me as well, that, you know, I should study hard, uh, and then go for a good career. My parents, in that sense, they are quite open-minded. They have never wanted me to become a traditional woman. Mm. They always encourage me to actually develop my full potential. They want me to be successful in life. Mm. Mm. Did you think that was very revolutionary at that time? Yeah, I think it was quite revolutionary and quite different from the rest of my friends growing up. Mm. Um, because some of them... You know, when even when we were kids, they were talking about they want to get married, they want to have kids, you know, they play with dolls. Whereas in my mind was that when I grow up, I want to be like this career woman in the power suit. I remember watching, uh, back then we have like those Hong Kong series yeah. that was still broadcast in Cantonese version. <laughs> and, um, you know, I remember there is this power woman in this power suit. And I, I was like, so aspired, want to be like her. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was me growing up. And uh, because my family, in terms of financial wise, both parents working, we are a little bit more well to do. So my dad has a car. And I remember that my primary schoolmates used to tell me that, oh, they were so envious of me whenever my dad drove into the school compound and <laughs> picked me up. Whereas they had to like carry their heavy bag and walk home <laughs> or go onto the school bus and to be dropped off. So they always think like I'm the little princess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it almost sounds like because of the values that your parents taught you, you didn't act like the spoiled little princess, right? Um, no, because um, my mom also instilled in me that I have to be really independent. Um, my mom has a was brought up in a very interesting background in the sense that she actually left home at 12 years old to work in rubber plantation. Mm. And she kind of slowly worked her way out to Singapore, picked up skills of doing hairdressing and manicure and developed her career from there. Mm. So she is quite a fighter in that sense, you know, mm. uh, but she's very soft-spoken mm. uh, and, ve and very traditional and really respect, you know, what traditional women should be to be very proper. So she, she taught me all the housework. So even though um, on the outside I was seen by my classmate as like the little princess, I started learning cooking 
when I was like nine years old. Wow. Um, I have to take care of myself because I actually have to stay alone at home on my own while parents working. Yeah. Yeah. So I cooked, I helped to do housework, sweep the floor, the yeah. mop the floor, yeah. Yeah, wash the dishes. The only person who doesn't have to do any housework was my dad. <laughs> See, how, how, how ironic, right? Like, like, so modern, yet it's like so traditional at the same time. So that's a bit of background about our guest, Angela Ng. And to be frank, I found it quite fascinating because of just how many points of contrast there actually were. You could look at the stigma of the spoiled single child versus Angela's own reality. You could look at the conflict between traditional and modern values that her parents held. Or you could even look at the beliefs and culture that people had in the 70s as compared to today. In many ways, you could argue that Angela was quite ahead of her time, a prototypical power suit wearing corporate career woman stuck in a culture where the subservient housewife was still the norm. And as she grew older, these modern beliefs would translate into a drive and ambition that fueled her inevitable journey into the corporate world. So I think everyone knows the Singaporean dream is that five C's, right? Or maybe <laughs> it has evolved to six, seven, or even eight C's now. Yeah. I think the five C's are like you must have cash, you have a credit card, then I think you need to have um not a HDB flat, but a condo mm. <laughs> and car for sure. Then the fifth one is country club. Yeah. So for me, I don't really have country club, but I have career. So I graduated with a degree in marketing and media and I joined the marketing and media industry Hmm. as a media planner. I enjoy the work surprisingly and because I'm quite a go-getter, right? Because my mind is kind of set up on like this power woman image, right? So I I work very hard and whenever there's an opportunity to try new things, I always put my hands up to volunteer for new projects and I will wear many different hats. Life was just like like a roller coaster that keeps going up. <laughs> There's lots of parties after work. Uh, there's a lot of socializing and all that. And never imagine the the coming down. Mm. You know, you don't have any idea or foresight that how it will be like if it comes down. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you know you were always a sort of uh, go getter. Mm. You know, uh, highly motivated. You know, those kind of take initiative. Mm. So I'm assuming this was what led to you moving to China for work. Yeah, in a way. Actually, when I first got married, uh, my ex-husband got posted to US for two years. Mm. And I gave up my career in Singapore to follow suit. But after two years, his contract finished with comeback. So I went back to my job. My ex-husband got another opportunity to move, and this time to China. But this time round, I'm determined that I want to move on my own terms. Mm. In the sense that I want to make sure that I have got a job there, then yeah. I will move. It was only after he has moved six months later, um, a company approached me and said, that, hey, we heard that you're interested to move to China. We do have a, a role for you. So I accepted the role. But before I can move, because it was agreed that, okay, I will move in three months' time, um, my mom was uh, discovered that she had terminal cancer. Wow. And the doctor said that she only had three months left. Thank you. 
So I spoke to the company then. I said that, you know, this is happening. Can I defer going to China for three months? And they say, okay. So bring us back, um, if you can, to that moment when you first heard the news. Mm. What was going through your head? I was quite calm, actually. So what happened was my mom, she has this gastric disorder for a while and she's been going back to the same GP, getting the same medicine. And I noticed that she has been losing weight and I thought that was not very normal. So I insisted on bringing her to a specialist to have a full and proper checkup. And it was during that checkup that we uncovered that she has this terminal cancer. I was surprisingly calm because at that time, I know that I have to take on taking care of my mom and also making the decision of how to handle this whole matter. We can't inform my dad what's happening, but my dad is kind of like an emotional mess himself, right? Because he, he's never quite involved in the household decision, you know, so he's a bit lost as to what to do. And we didn't really tell my mom that she is terminally ill. We kept her hopeful in that sense. Um, so so I have to kind of juggle a bit, uh, that a bit. So, But I remember I was surprisingly calm. I suppose I'm the kind that who always kind of look calm and composed on the outside. But maybe inside, I'm kind of like just don't know what I'm feeling or I never really stop to think or explore how I should be feeling or what was I really feeling at that time. Yeah. You know, you just kind of like, okay, if you handle this, you have to handle this. You know, I have to bring her to the best doctor, which is a doctor or she has to try alternative medicine. So it's always about doing, 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 doing. Yeah. I have to say, we were still quite hopeful then. I mm. suppose part of the reason I didn't tell my mom was to keep her hopeful, but I think partly was to keep myself hopeful. Because it, the doctor says she has three months left, but she actually survived six months. Mm. So by the third month, when she actually showing, like her cancer marker actually kind of um, shows better results, right? We were really hopeful, I think. It was like, oh, maybe there's a chance that uh, miracles can happen and, and maybe it will happen on us and you know, she could be cured. So, yeah. So I told the company, I need three more months, right? Mm. Then at point of three months, my mom's still around. So, but I have to go and my mom knew I had a job and she didn't know she was terminally ill. So she mm. was like asking me like, why aren't you going and I suppose in order, in order to cover up the lie, I really had to go to work. If not, she would start suspecting like, you're not working because of me and all that. So there were many reasons. So I went and then one day while I was working there, I actually just flew back, you know, after spending some time with her in Singapore, I went back to Shanghai and was working on a pitch when I received a phone call very late at night in the office. They said that you have to come back now. My cousin called me and I said, okay. So it's like, I know things are not going well. And then I took kind of like the red eye flight back, um, like almost 11 or 12 midnight flight. Mm. And I was back in Singapore by like 5 a.m., 6 a.m.
So my mom was in hospital and it was kind of in a quite a bad situation. The function of the lungs has weakened and she contracted pneumonia. So I remember that fateful night was I came home and then the hospital called. And then they said that, oh, Miss Ng, I think you have to come back to the hospital. I think your mom is not, you know, doing well. So I remember I, I get into the car and I sped there. It was the worst, like it was the most dangerous driving that I've ever done. But I think when I when we arrived, she has already passed away. And uh, so my dad went to the bed and my dad cried next to her. I kind of stood a bit away from the bed. You know, in hospital when they would, they would draw the curtains um, in the room. And so I kind of stood like, like at the edge of the curtain on the outside and just looked at her body. And then I went and stood outside the room that was this pillar. I stood outside the pillar and I, and I tried to cry, but I couldn't cry. I think it was a mix of shock and just don't know what is that emotion. I just couldn't cry. And then I just, I tried to make my cry because there was this heavy heaviness in my chest, you know, and I, I wanted out. And then one of these uncle, a patient, in the, in the hospital gown, he walked towards me and he wanted to comfort me and he put his hand on my arm and it started me. Hmm. And then that, and then I think that, that, that shock actually chased away all the, all the intention to cry and then I, and I walked away. And then uh, when I walked away, uh, my cousins still arrived and thank goodness that, uh, you know, I have cousins who are much older than me and they have kind of experienced, they've been through this with their parents. So they helped me do all the administration with the hospital and I just need to sign the papers and it, it was kind of in a numb state. Like, whatever they asked me to do, sign, I just sign. I don't even know what I was signing. I don't, can't read. It was just kind of days. I didn't cry. I wasn't showing a lot of emotions and I was just kind of like numb and just a, a state of, I don't know, like disbelief. But as well as knowing that this is real, for possibly the first time in Angela's life, she was met with a roadblock that she didn't really know how to handle. She had always been capable and adept at solving problems and moving up the career ladder, but when her role model in life passed away, she became emotionally stuck, numb, and didn't have the wherewithal to process the grief. Furthermore, what certainly didn't help was the fact that her professional life had to keep going as if nothing had ever happened. So after that, my Asia-Pacific CEO called me into the office. The Asia-Pacific office is based in Singapore. And I went to see him and then he said that, what do you think if we promote you? I said, promote me? He said, yeah, we want to promote you to the GM of Beijing office. I said, I've just been in Shanghai like three months. <laughs> like, and half the time I wasn't there, I was back in Singapore. <laughs> I don't know the market. He said, it's okay. Beijing is actually just a very small office for us. It's kind of like an outpost office of the whole of China. And they were facing some big problems in Beijing. They just want somebody that they can trust to kind of sit there and kind of manage the situation. So I said, um, okay, I'll try. So again, it was very strange because I remember stepping into my Apex CEO office. He obviously know my mom has passed away. Because he said, how are you? And then he delivered the promotion news to me in a very upbeat and positive manner. <laughs> so, you know, this all contradicts about my knowledge about griefing. 
there is just not a moment of sadness that is anywhere external of me. But I, I think there were all these things that were trapped inside. So, and I couldn't express it because everyone around me are not in that state. It would be really strange if I started telling people, oh, you know what, I'm feeling really bad and lousy and lost. And yeah, so there wasn't a moment or a right moment for me to do that. Yeah, so I, so life goes on. And so for Angela, life went on. She got promoted, moved to Beijing, and was steadily climbing the corporate ladder. However, as you can probably expect, when you have a deep heaviness inside you and no adequate outlet to manage it, it is like carrying a ticking time bomb that is just waiting to go off, a threat which would be realized shortly following her big move. He actually was going through a very stressful period adapting to the life in China. But I wasn't aware because I was quite preoccupied with my mom's illness. So I think we started to grow apart. We did try to kind of find the, the intimacy back, but it was, it was challenging and we couldn't figure it out by ourselves. And I did suggest to seek help, but he wasn't open to, to marriage counseling. So eventually we decided to divorce. And I remember that we held hands and walked into the lawyer office. And we signed the papers, we walked out, we gave each other a hug, and then we went our separate ways. So you, you see, I think it's two big relationships lost. One's my, the relationship with my mom, and then one is with my husband. So And it all happens within a span of a year. Mm. So I think it must have hit me quite hard. But when I moved to Beijing, and when this happened, I just buried myself in the work, which on hindsight is really, really bad. Yeah. I wasn't aware that I was actually emotionally in a bad state then. But I'm beginning to feel some effects on my health. Like I, I'm constantly tired. I'm very lethargic. And I'm having pains here and there and... And just kind of weird illness that I never had start developing. Hmm. I even uh, fainted twice. Hmm. Yeah, so I fainted twice, once at home. Thank goodness the helper, the IE in China, she came in and she saw me and then she woke me up. And then another time, I think I was on a, on a trip that I suddenly felt like, you know, like how come the, the world is spinning and all hmm. that. So I didn't pay much attention to what, what my body was telling me. I just keep pushing on. And so after Beijing, because Beijing office was doing so well, I got another promotion. So this time I was promoted to the managing director of both Beijing and Shanghai office. And they want me to move back to Shanghai <laughs> because Shanghai is a bigger office, right? So now this by then, this the role requires me to oversee 200 over people in two offices. So I had to become more busy, you know, to split your time between two cities, um, shutter here and there, flying here and there. And yeah, and then because of all these so-called busyness and responsibilities, I just have no time to really listen to my body and listen to myself. And then, but then I moved to Shanghai, things become a bit better. So I stopped just focusing on work. I started going out, socializing. Then I thought, why not, you know, give myself another chance? Um so I started dating and and because I think I'm emotionally not at the right place, I 
didn't date the right people. Right, so I got into this relationship with an uh, abusive person, and I was in this relationship for three years. Wow. Yeah, before I got out. So the abuse was it started with emotional abuse. So he was cheating on me, not just once but many times. But for this particular person, I kept forgiving him, and I kept believing his lies. And then I went deeper and deeper into the relationship until it becomes a physical abuse as well. The last straw was when suddenly one day he, he went crazy, right? And then the physical abuse started again. That time, I don't know what happened. I called my friend who knew about my troubled relationship. And then she said, get out now. And I said, get out now. She said, yeah, you go and book yourself a ticket back home. I help you to call the movers and we will move your things back to Singapore. So I remember we had a fight on a Sunday. I booked my tickets on a Monday. My friend helped me arrange for the mover to come and get my things on a Tuesday. And Tuesday morning, before he left for work, I told him that I'm leaving and I'm moving back to Singapore. I'm breaking up with you. And I left on a Friday. <laughs> In my view, what I find most tragic about Angela's story is just how pernicious the burnout was. On the surface, everything seemed to be going well. She was getting promoted, overseeing more and more people, and fulfilling that career woman ambition that she has had ever since she was a kid. And yet, on the inside, everything was a mess. The heaviness and the baggage from those painful relationship losses were untreated and left to rot until it manifested into unhealthy decisions that perpetuated a vicious cycle. It is pernicious because of how easy it is to fall into these traps, to get caught up in the rat race, climbing corporate ladders and pursuing material wealth to the point of self-destruction. When society mostly values you for your surface qualities, it is easy to turn a blind eye on what's underneath, or to just put up a mask until it becomes too painful to say I'm okay any longer. I think that was really kind of like the lowest point because at that point, obviously when I finished my contract and was able to totally not wear another role, I could totally just be myself, right? I don't have to be like this strong businesswoman. I don't have staff that I need to be strong for, you know, totally being myself. Then I realized I was in depression. Mm. I was burnt out from all the exhaustion and I was in depression because of the abusive relationship. So I started to seek help then. I started to talk to counsellor. Um, I started taking, you know, therapy and all that. It didn't really help, but it was really that move when I really get myself out of the toxic environment, move back to Singapore in four days. It really feels like a new starting point. So please tell me what happened once you go back to Singapore. I'm hoping that you didn't just immediately jump back into another job no, or something. No, no, no. So I gave myself time off this time. Okay. I took a good year-long break. 
So I give myself one year off work, no work, and I actually travel. I travel to Europe for 10 weeks. Mm. I spent five weeks in Italy and five weeks in London. And five weeks in London, I actually took up psychology, a summer course in psychology. And it was a trip that turns me around because I started reflecting what I really want in life. And then I realized that I have so many buried, strong emotions that was not processed for years. And that was the reason why I got myself into the abusive relationship. It wasn't the person who was making me get into the relation. I got myself into it. So I totally owned the responsibility for it. And that all these unprocessed emotions that came up, I really need to deal with them. And I realized how important emotions are in our life and we just didn't realize it. We couldn't labor them. Like all this like heaviness in the chest when my mom passed away, when I was standing outside the hospital room, I just couldn't describe it. There's no words to labor them. If I know how to labor them, I would have known how to deal with them better. Reflecting back, right, over the course, uh, over all the screwed up moments that you had, right? Mm. What do you think about them? Do you view them differently uh, now as compared to before? I'm glad I have those screw up moments mm. because I realized that it is during those screw up moments that I've learned the most about life. If I haven't screwed up, I wouldn't have taken this different path. I would have continued living my so-called Singapore dream, but I wasn't feeling happy. And a lot of times, all these are, I, I feel like it's money spent on therapy. <laughs> it wasn't spent on things that really feel fulfilling and enriching. Mm. So I look back, I think the screw-up moments are a turning point in my life. And I, and I really thank them for the, all the lessons and allow me, in a way, a second chance. And so with that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much, much thanks to Angela Ung for sharing her amazing story. These days, Angela has moved on from her corporate roles to being an educator and she has even published her own book titled What Colors Are You Feeling? which is certainly a far cry from the emotionally numb state that she was in before. If you would like to get in touch with her or check out the book, I will be leaving the links in the description. With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean social enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening.